Welcome to another episode of the False Neutral Podcast, a member of the Hooniverse Podcast Network. With me today are other co-hosts, Eric and Garrett. I'm Pete. And today uh, we're going to start a new segment, Things You Should Know. Garrett, take it away. Yeah, that's all right. News slash things you should know. Um, so by the time listeners hear this podcast, these won't be the most current of news uh, updates, but they are important and you should know them. So as follows, this week, Jorge Lorenzo, uh, they announced that there is a big deal that he would be leaving Yamaha for Ducati, which was rumored for quite some time, but they officially announced it today. What do you think about that, Eric? That's been sort of a, okay, we can't say it's official, but it's been unofficially official for about three right. months now, or at least two and a half, well, since the first race of Qatar, so it's been a month, so... Um, yeah, it's going to be pretty interesting. There's some really good articles being written about it and the, and the psychology behind it. Um, if Jorge were to be able to go to Ducati and win a championship, he would be only the fifth MotoGP slash GP rider to ever do it. Um, only um, Agostini, I think it was Phil Reed, Eddie Lawson, and Valentino Rossi have ever gone to a new manufacturer and won another championship so yeah. that there's the, there's that uh, to cement himself as sort of like one of the great of all time and also going to ducati and, and trying to succeed where valentino rossi did not granted right. it's a whole different regime over there so it's not yeah. quite apples to apples but um yeah there's just a whole lot of really intriguing behind the scenes kind of stuff behind it and it's good it's yeah, a good shake this- up for the paddock this is a big deal because he's such an asset with his previous GP wins and everything else. Um, this is a really big move, I think, for Ducati to you know help solidify themselves uh, in points. So this will be good. Um, secondly, I was going to mention that Harley Davidson unveiled a new Roadster model. It's part of their dark custom lineup. Uh, this new model is uh, based a little bit on the Sportster, but Harley maintains that it is... Um, it's got a lot of differences. So they say that it's got a fastback design. It was inspired by a classic racing motorcycle. Um, and that it shares some similarities with a Sportster, but it does feature some upgraded suspension with better adjustability and more travel. It's got dual front rotors on the front and some really amazing looking alloy wheels on the front of it. So uh, available with ABS and price starts just over $11,000. Uh, definitely take a look at that. Leave some comments. Tell me what you think about it. Um, I previously mentioned that I had some uh, hatred for American V-Twins. So tell me if you think that I'm wrong because of this bike. Leave a comment. I'd love to hear it. Uh, we're we're going to have an upcoming All-American episode where we will talk about not only this, but some of the other things going on <laughs> with American manufacturers. And uh, we'll have uh, uh, another uh, friend of the podcast uh, our buddy Wayne Moyer, who has been a victory owner and is currently a Sportster owner. He'll be with us for that episode. Look for that in a couple weeks. But I'm really kind of jazzed about the new Roadster. It looks like they finally listened to the people who said, you're going for style and right. there's no performance. And... They've gotten stung pretty much every time they've tried to come out with a performance Harley in the past. Yeah. I'm glad to see him continuing to do it. The upside-down forks, the the yeah. longer shocks. The, and adjustable shocks, too. They've yeah. added some adjustments yeah. to it that have previously not been there. Yeah. So, I give them kudos for it. And I think it's one of the better-looking Sportsters that come, has come out. They're not quite clip-on bars, but it's got low, almost drag bars on yeah. it. They've raised the tank a little bit and given it a flat seat with kind of a bustle back on it. And I, I'm not thrilled about the the truncated rear fender. It, the, the, I, I kind of like it. it. It it looks a little unfinished to me, but I know that's kind of the yeah. the the look now. And I'm. Right. I'm not their target market. I'm 52 <laughs> going on 53. So, uh, yeah, they don't care what I think. Yeah, and that model is probably designed towards the target market that I would be in. But, um, you know, I really do like it. If I were going to buy a Harley, it would probably be one of those. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not into the baggers, the cruisers, uh, the big bikes. But the Sportster, I mean, I could get behind it. I like it. So. Okay, so we need to hold that conversation for our All-American yes. episode that's coming up. That's right. 
This week, we're going to get dirty. We're going to talk about dirt bikes this week. Uh, everything we've done up until this point has been mostly pavement-oriented discussion. And I don't have that much dirt experience, but I know, Garrett, you do. And I don't know about your dirt experience, Eric. Do you have much much riding in the off-road environment? Almost zero. <laughs> I, I have experience on riding dirt bikes three or four times and XR100s on, you know, homemade TT courses. That's There's my dirt experience. Yeah, in Michigan, around where you're at, how what is the dirt scene like? Are there trails and places to ride? I mean, are, is it like in the Northwest? I mean, there are unlimited places to ride. Is that the same in Michigan? There are. Uh, if you go about two hours outside of where I live, sure, um, you get north of Flint, um, north of sort of Bay City Midland, um, and then more the west side of the state. Then yeah, and and there's a and the reason I and there's a reason that that works out too is um, there is a whole thing of the um, like the greatest dirt track racers. Some of the greatest yeah. dirt track racers in the world are from about 65 miles north of me, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, starting <laughs> right. with Scotty Parker and, and the list goes, you know, there's about a list of 50. The, uh, the Michigan, they, they were they were often known as the Michigan Mafia because there's they were traveling, you know, six to ten at a, together in a group and basically dominating everything. And, and, yeah. and to some extent still do. In the northwest here, I'm pretty lucky within about 20 minutes of where I live is a pretty popular riding spot up in the mountains. And aside from that, there are many, many places. And just recently, a couple weeks ago, uh, I was riding out in an area called East Fort Rock, if the Northwest, Northwest listeners are familiar with it. It's got about 320 miles of trails. It's extremely expansive. I mean, it covers many square miles. And um, the great thing about it is... It's popular, but it's so expansive where we can go there. It was a spring break weekend when we went, and there I saw maybe maybe five people in total, but never anybody on the trail that we were on. I mean, it was just like we were driving uh, down the road to get to our camp, and we saw other people camping, but never saw them on the trail. And that's how it is uh, pretty frequently there. It's just so expansive. You never see anybody. And it's an amazing place to um, ride dirt bikes, shoot guns, um, you know, all that kind of outdoor stuff. So um, I love going there. Pete, do you guys have any off-road riding areas in the, you know, the woods where you're at? Unfortunately, there's not a lot of public areas close to me. It, there are some, I mean, there's plenty of places, but you're going to have to pack up a trailer and yeah. and take off for the day to get someplace. Kansas and Missouri have plenty of open spaces where you can ride. The problem is getting permission from landowners. Yeah. Uh, my only real dirt experience was at Fort Lewis, and I was really uh, lucky that all of the tank trails in a wide expanse of different areas from wooded to wide yeah. open tank trails was right. all available that you know, it was kind of wild to pop up over a hill and have an a1 abrams coming the other yeah. way but you yeah, know no we were free to go out there and uh what they called the training area for riding yeah. around so i didn't do a whole lot of really tight trails or elevation changes or anything like that but i really enjoyed just getting out on some rolling flat area that all the trails were wide enough to put a tank down. So I didn't yeah. learn anything. I did go riding once with a friend of mine down in southwest Missouri, and it was very challenging. It yeah. was a lot of very steep ascents on single track, and it really taught me how much skill you have to have for some of that terrain it wasn't quite trials riding yeah but there were some trails that you couldn't take a four-wheeler up that right. were that and narrow in between the trees and it was it was intimidating and i was also right. on a borrowed motorcycle that i didn't want to destroy <laughs> yeah. and i had some guys going really really fast and i was like okay i'm not even going to keep up with these guys but yeah. they, they and- had defined trails that you had to stay on but you could go the whole day and never hit the same trail twice. Yeah. Uh, East Fort Rock, where we were just riding at, they it's 
it's kind of neat the way that they lay the trails out. It's really well organized, and it's a lot like a ski resort where there is green circle trails, blue squares, and black diamonds. Um, and it's on it's an entire lava bed. The whole place is all um, ancient lava beds, so inherently it's really rocky. And the trail designations generally correlate with the level of rockiness that it is. So a green circle is is still pretty rocky, but it's not like boulders. It's mainly just kind of um, they might even be gigantic boulders under the ground. But there's such that when you ride over the top of them, it's just kind of gradual. Um, but the Black Diamond trails are extremely rocky and it is more like kind of like what you would see with a four-wheel drive and crawling over things. It's really difficult to navigate. And in fact, on a big bike, um, an XR650, something like that, it would be almost impossible to ride over some of these trails. Um, People really like the two-stroke, lightweight KTM cross-country bikes for that type of riding. And even trials bikes, those are pretty popular too. Um, But the differences in... um, kind of the easier trails and the more difficult trails there's uh if a log falls across one of the black diamond trails they leave it they don't clear those off they leave the rocks and it's pretty fun uh, to go over some of those really intense obstacles but even as much experience as i have it's still quite a ways out of my league i have to say that i've I've seen like you know you go out on youtube and you look at some of the the GoPro point of view cameras of these guys yeah. riding on these really tight single track trails and they've got really big tree roots that they're going yes. over and mud bogs and everything and the speed at which these guys are going over these obstacles just makes my butt it's, pucker. It's, it is insane. Uh, if you guys have ever seen and if you haven't watch it, Red Bull Last Man Standing which is the most extreme off-road dirt bike race imaginable. In fact, um, there are probably only about 25% of the people that start it finish it. It's, wow. I mean, and these are the best of the best across the entire country for off-road riding. And only about a quarter of the people can even finish it. But the speed that they do things, it's really designed to test all of the rider's capabilities from hill climbs um, to logs. Uh, They do everything you can think of, but they attack these hills and rocks and logs and tires at speeds that are just almost unimaginable. I mean, they're just so good at what they do. So definitely look at that if you haven't. Red Bull, Last Man Standing. There's a uh, video. I don't know if I'll be able to find it, but it was a man-made course that was like a box full of rocks then a two by four that goes over to uh, a series of logs that you have to go over and then you know a ladder that's kind of uphill but the boards are spaced a foot apart and then into a tree house and down a ramp that's only a couple of inches wide there was a video of a guy going through that and he was clearly lapping people that were hung up on things that he was just floating over. And it's amazing to watch this video. I'll have to try and see if I can find the link to put in the blog post for this so that people can see it. But it was just truly astounding how much control some of these guys have. And it wasn't even like a trials bike. It was a regular off-road bike that this guy was just walking over things that you'd have to crawl over just on foot. It was amazing. Speaking of trials bikes, have you guys ever ridden a trials bike before? No, I would love to. Uh, I've putted around the pits at a race on one, yeah, yeah. but that's that's about the extent of it, yeah. I've been riding dirt bikes forever, right? And never previously having ridden a trials bike, but they always looked so cool and they always look so easy to ride. The people that ride them are, you know, they just, they do anything on them. And so a friend of mine has one, and this was last year sometime. He had a, a big piece of property, a bunch of trails around it. I rode his trials bike and this was just on a normal trail. They by themselves regardless of the terrain, are actually really difficult to ride. The weight, and and I say this if you're used to riding a dirt bike, the weight balance is so interesting on them. I remember going up a hill, and it wasn't a particularly steep hill, 
but the front end is so light it wants to come off the ground so easily you have to ride with your entire weight over the front tire going up a hill i was blown away at how difficult they are to ride and this friend of mine he's so good on his trials bike i'm on my honda 450 been riding it for a long time in his trails, he would destroy me on his trials bike. In this, like, no aggressive terrain. It's just kind of normal trail riding. He's so much faster on his trials bike than I am on my 450, which is amazing to me considering when I rode it, I could barely even get it up a hill without flipping over backwards on it. They're the most interesting experience. Yeah, they. Uh, it's a whole thing of you can literally just be... It, it's idling. Well, the first set of two-stroke bike just sits and idles without lifting the throttles, the whole yeah. thing, too, right? So, yeah, I mean, you don't even have to give it a gas. Just let the clutch out, and it just right. it just walks, right? Exactly. And, 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 and yeah, you're right, because there is a reason you see these guys standing on the pegs and basically from their, you know, mid-chest uh, up are kind of always positioned over the handlebars. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's like you say, it's... It, and, yeah, that's, and that's so that you can like pick it up and move it around so easy exactly. as you're, you're trying to position yourself for your next move. Their throttle response is so incredible, too, that like if you yeah. just touch the throttle, the front end is coming up if you're not ready for it. I mean, it's just the craziest experience. I, I've always wanted to ride a trials bike. One of the first books I ever bought, I was in a bookstore right after I got into motorcycling in high school, and I found a copy <laughs> of an HP sports book written by Mick Walker on how to ride trials. And it, yeah. was, it was really fascinating. It was kind of a step-by-step thing about how to ride a trials bike. Yeah. And the things that he was telling you to do, just reading about them was amazing. Yeah. He was you know, demonstrating the photos in this book were an old Fantic 240 that would be so archaic in comparison to all of the trials bike that, people are riding today yeah and they can they're so much more capable that i would love to try it i've i've seen trials i went to see some national trials out in colorado and i've also seen some bicycle trials yeah and the bicycle trailers are equally amazing because yeah. they've got to be their own engine and yes, the fact right. that they can be you know balancing the front wheel on a vertical <laughs> rock stop stay balanced and then continue pedaling while they're standing and going up a ride. It's like, I just saw it and I don't believe how I, that anybody yeah. could do that. Well, and that's what's so weird about trials bikes is there's really not a whole lot that can give you that experience or it's, it's hard to relate it to anything else. You would almost think that riding a dirt bike would kind of prepare you for riding a trials bike, but it doesn't really work that way. I would say riding a trials bike would help you learn to ride a dirt bike, but not the other way. They're just so dissimilar. I think more relatable is a mountain bike. Just I was, was going to say old school, B, old school BMX bike. Yeah. Or even um, I used to ride downhill mountain biking and the the weight the weight of it and and kind of the feel of the machine is more similar to a downhill mountain bike really than it is uh, a regular dirt bike downhill mountain biking that's like they think road racing's dangerous <laughs> yeah Downhill. The only reason why I gave up downhill mountain biking is because I just got tired of pedaling. It's better if you have. Well, no, a you're going downhill. Car. You don't need to pedal. You're going downhill. <laughs> yeah, no, that's <laughs> unless you have a way to get back up. Yeah. Um, but pedaling a 58 pound mountain bike up a hill, you know, with, also with nine inches of suspension travel, that every time you pedal, it compresses that nine inches of travel. It's almost impossible to get up a hill. <laughs> Well, I, and I think we need to point out that you don't have to be some kind of a super expert to ride in the dirt. No. I was a donk and find a smooth enough, wide enough area, and you can just kind of twist the throttle and go where you want to go. It's kind of nice not having the the restrictions you have on the road of here's your lane, here's the speed yep. limit. Uh, a couple of days ago, I sent you guys the uh, point of view YouTube link of a guy on a We'll talk about Persang that I used to have. And he was out in the desert just giving it gas and taking off. And I forgot how much I really enjoyed riding in those kind of conditions on something. Yeah. That bike was so narrow and so light. My first riding was on my XL600R, which had, you know, dual sport, not even aggressive dual sport tires on it and a whole lot of weight. 
it was a real handful. And I thought, this this dirt stuff is for the birds. And then I got on that, and it was like, oh, wow. All you got to do is give it a little throttle, and the front wheel's up, you know, and you can hold yeah. it five inches off the road or yep. the trail and for as long as you want, and you're not freaking out. I was like, oh, this is so much fun. So I was watching that video the other day, and I had to send it to you guys because it just reminded me, you can just get out and have fun, not even racing, not even being in competition, not even having challenging terrain, just getting out absolutely riding wherever you want to go can be so much fun there's a there's a really good conversation um i don't know if it was the last one of one of the last episodes of smoking tire podcast and uh matt fair is talking about how you know the 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 arms race with cars is has become so much that you have these five six seven eight hundred horsepower cars if not from the factory then what people are tuning them up to be and it's like even on a track they're they're so powerful you can't get get to it but you go out you know, for him, an hour or so outside of L.A. into the deserts or whatever, he says you go off road in a car, and that's why off roading has become so big out there. And you can kind of just do whatever and rip it up, and there are no speed limits, and there are no walls, and you know, you can kind of just hang it out. And and I kind of see the same thing with motorcycles too, in that for street bikes and even some of the dirt bike stuff is just either less areas to go ride or. You know, they're they're become so powerful. You can't really enjoy yourself or you you can't feel what it's like to really just crank it open and, and exploit something to its limit. And and that is the cool thing about going like out, out riding off road is you is probably a better chance. I mean, if you're not yeah. not on necessarily a, a tight trail, but if you got some open space, you can you can rip it up and, and, and enjoy it that way, too. That's it's an excellent point. And it's good to say that people for motorcycles off-road you can have fun on anything but whether it's uh you know an xr200 or it's a crf 450 anything in between you can have fun on it and anybody can but you can you really can ride a bigger bike on uh, open trails than you normally would get the chance to on a track for instance on a motocross track uh, an experienced rider would have a difficult time riding even a 250 four-stroke at the limit but if you can go out into an open riding area you can make use of more power if you want to but that isn't to say that you really need it i think people oftentimes make the mistake of wanting to get a, a either a 500 bike, <laughs> right or you know or a 450 when a 250 is really still a, an amazing machine and so a good example of that is ktm's 350 it's right in a weird spot where people either want a 450 because it's got all the power or they're not quite comfortable with a 450 so they think that the 250 is the best match when i can tell you from experience that the 350 is the most amazing engine and the most amazing compromise of a lot of power um but still yet having a lot of torque and a, a easy to manage package uh the ktm 350s don't really sell very well in fact resale values on the ktm 350s are terrible um because it's just kind of a weird in-between bike but for any listener that's thinking about getting into off-road get a 350 either the sx or the xc you will not regret it they are the most amazing dirt bikes and and i, I think oh, go on I was gonna say I was I was gonna say I was I'm just pulled up the KTM website here really quick just because I couldn't remember which model it was but yeah if I was doing that I would I would go for the 300 XC or the XCW um, yeah. just because it's two stroke it's going to weigh less and be far less expensive on the maintenance. Yeah, that's true. And the cool thing about KTM two strokes nowadays is they're all electric start. Um, yep. in, in 08, they started doing an adjustable ignition map on the handlebars so you can kind of tune it to your preference. Um, they're really low maintenance. They have incredible power. I just posted a picture for Pete and Eric. This was my KTM 250 XCW that I had, mm. um, two stroke, and it was a really neat bike. The only reason why I went away from the two strokes on the off-road side is because of compression braking. The two strokes have none. So when you're coming into a corner and you let off the gas, the bike's not slowing down. You have to use the brakes. And so in that respect, they're a little bit less forgiving for newer riders um, than a four-stroke where when you let off the gas, the bike is going to slow down pretty rapidly. Um, But you're right. The 300 amazing machine in fact those are still the most popular off-road um cross-country style motorcycle or the two strokes especially the 300s um low cost uh tons of torque 
the 350 four-stroke is probably going to be the most user-friendly and most rewarding experience for a rider, I think. And if you haven't ridden in the dirt, I have experience on the two bikes that I had, and I borrowed an XR200R, which is, as far as dirt bikes go, pretty mild. You know, yes. it's, it's low power, easy. You get off-road, even a little 200 four-stroke two-valve motor will open your eyes. Yes. <laughs> you, yeah. It feels a whole lot faster. The capabilities of that engine feel a whole lot faster off-road than they do <laughs> well, if you're going to yeah. take a, a 200 single out on the highway. It's yeah. going to feel like a dog. You get off-road, and you're like, wow. This, yeah. It's and exciting. I promise, I promise that you'll have more fun on something that's under your capabilities than something that's over your capabilities because mm -hmm. things things happen really fast on a bike that's got too much power for you and the chances of getting hurt are so significant but on something like a xr200 or anything uh, remotely the same you can go into any trail and just rally the thing and you're gonna have a ton of fun regardless of if you've been riding for 30 years or not I had a cousin growing up who had, I think he had a 100cc Speedway, mm -hmm. uh, which was kind of, you know, one step up from a Rupp mini bike. And yeah. he had, they lived in the suburbs, and he had a groove, a dirt course around his house that was kind of a, a big C-shape around his house, around the front of the house, across the driveway, in between the neighbors, and he would ride that thing for hours, just back yeah. and forth. And, back. and I was always really jealous of him growing up because my parents would never let me on his motorcycle. Yeah. And I wanted to ride it so bad. And even that just looked like so much fun. And he was getting, you know, he, he kind of slided out in the turns and he completely destroyed their lawn. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's back when, you know, neighbors would let a kid do that without complaining. Yeah. Yeah, when we go out riding motorcycles, uh, we have a couple of mini bikes that we bring with, too. And I mean, these are like the old school taco, no rear suspension mini bikes. And we'll set up just a little course around the campsite. And I mean, we have probably more fun on those little taco mini bikes rallying them around the camp than we do trail riding our normal big bikes. It is just a blast. And that can be applied even to like... You know, I wouldn't say that somebody should buy a taco mini bike to go trail ride with, but you can have fun on anything and it doesn't need to be the most modern bike. It doesn't need to be a $4,000 bike. In fact, I think a lot of people get wrapped up into thinking that they need the latest and greatest when really, if you can just learn how to respect and have fun on a cheap and expensive bike, the reward will be so much greater. I, mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to get off topic here for a minute because I have to share a story with you. One of the most fun, it wasn't really a motorcycle event. I was working at a dealership that was just opening up, and their first product in was a couple of Yamaha tri, uh, they weren't the Trizinger, four-wheelers for kids. 60cc, no suspension. I think they called those Moto 4s. Yes, yes, the Moto 4, little tiny 60cc Two they stroke. had like a, a truck body. Yes, almost. yes. They looked yes. like a truck grill on the front. Yeah. Well, we had this giant warehouse that had just had a brand new concrete floor poured that was just like glass. And, tempting. and we had like five crates. So they put the crates in the middle, kind of like a pylon on either side. And after work, we uncrated these things and had oval track races on the concrete. And there was these, you know, 200-pound guys on these little things, but you could drift them on the concrete really nicely. Yeah. Our sides <laughs> hurt from laughing. You know, we had old-style open-face helmets that were passing back and forth to each other that were 20 years old that we'd found yeah. in the warehouse. <laughs> I haven't had that much fun just being crazy on a motor vehicle probably since then. Yeah, for sure. And they were slow enough that you could get away with it. And there were a couple of times we just completely bought it and you had to go tumble and sliding across the concrete and you go ah ha, ha, and you get back on and you ride some more yeah well speaking of off-road adventures there's several that i'm 
really wanting to do in the next several years and haven't done. And that is adventure writing, but more in like the long distance adventure writing. I've always looked at the Trans-American Trail and some of the other uh, like long distance coast to coast type of off-road adventure trails and thought about how neat it would be to spend a year planning an adventure ride, get some sort of adventure bike, probably an XR650, retrofit it with the GPS and all that, put the checkpoints in, have all the contacts set up, spend a year planning it, and then just take off on a four to six month adventure ride. Have you guys ever thought about doing anything like that? It's yes, but extreme. not to that level. Yeah, yeah. Not, 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 level. not seriously. Yes. So uh, what is it? There's one of the trails. Well, I think all of them, actually. They're set up in segments. Um, and so I think the Trans America Trail is in like eight or so different segments. And a lot of people will just do one or so, one or two of the segments and not do the whole thing. And that's kind of a good compromise. Um, I, I mean, I think it would probably be a responsible thing to do that first before trying to commit to a whole 3,000 mile ride. But um, maybe at some point in the next couple of years, <laughs> I'll do a segment and then try to plan a whole trip. The problem with so the one, go ahead, Pete. The problem with that is that in order to take what you need to have with you, yes, you're suddenly you've got a big heavy bike off road. Whereas if you're just going to go out and knock around off road, and you yeah. don't have to carry stuff with you, you know, you suddenly you're talking about something like uh, at the very minimum like a KLR six fifty, maybe yeah. uh, a GS twin. You're now talking about a real adventure bike. Those can be a real handful off-road unless yes. you're somebody with a lot of experience. That's not something for anybody to just, hey, I think I'll do that. Where if you want to go touring on the road, you know, go buy a bike and go do it. It's definitely not something that a beginner should endeavor. Um, the bikes the bikes are difficult to ride anyways. An XR650 or anything uh, remotely similar, a KLR, they're big, they're heavy, um, and so I've seen a lot of these videos of the adventure rides where they have to do a river crossing, for instance. And these are um, presumably experienced riders. But those big, heavy bikes, if they're going down, they're going down. And especially in something like a river crossing where you don't have stable footing, you can't see where you're placing your foot. It can be difficult, to say the least. It's difficult to carry all of the equipment that you need and have the balance of a bike that's, you know, at least comfortable or maneuverable on some of these trails. It's definitely an art form. I, you almost have to consult people that have done it a lot of times, really, to have any idea of what to do. So, in other words, you should start out with a little bit smaller, easier to manage bike like a TW200. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, at TW200, so, so long as you could carry enough fuel on it and do one of the sections, that would be really great. Have you guys, this reminds me, have you guys ever seen Ewan McGregor's Long Way Down and then his follow-up Long Way Around? You have that backwards, but yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, uh, Pete, have you seen I, I haven't, those? but I did, uh, I read both uh, Jupiter's Travels and Dreaming of Jupiter, the original Around the World trip. When I saw those for the first time, I mean, I've always kind of entertained the idea of doing a long distance adventure ride. But it was when I saw those two um, that it really sparked this need and desire to do a long distance adventure ride. Um, probably not out of my continent, but uh, <laughs> certainly um, at least from coast to coast or from Canada to Mexico. One of those at some point I'll do. The, the one that I've wanted to do for, I don't know, a couple of years now since I found out that it actually exists is the Pony Express Trail. Which so one's that? The, so there actually are still uh, the government, still on government lands. The, the original Pony Express Trails, or, or at least some of them, still exist. They start It starts like at the, in western Illinois or maybe in Iowa uh, and then St. goes to St. Joseph, Missouri. Okay, there's a stop there. And, well, that's, uh, where the, that's where the Pony Express started. That was, oh, is it? That okay. Was, that was the origin of the Pony Express route was St. Joseph, Missouri. Okay, but I, there was something I read where there's some part of it now that starts or did or whatever in, in Illinois, but whatever. So anyway, from, so from there, and then it goes out through what, Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, and then forks off to um, either California or up to 
Oregon and, and Washington, you're never more than, you know, that far away from civilization if things get really weird. I'm sure you're, you're out of cell phone service at some point, but you're not completely in the middle of the desert. It's a it's a kept trail uh, with park rangers and stuff. So, you you know, there's there's still hope um, yeah. that said. It, and, and the roads are groomed mostly. So you're it's not like it'd be a huge deal. But I think it's one of those things of it would be. I don't know. It'd be cool for on, on a couple different levels of a it is it is off road. B there's a historic level and there's all these little um, forts where they would you know every twenty to thirty miles where back in the day they change horses and not all of them are still there but there's a lot of posts and markers and some have been kept or restored or you know memorials and stuff like that. So I've seen pictures. I've seen a few things um, longer articles on on a couple little bits of it, uh, but it just always struck me as that would be a really cool thing to do and you could probably knock it out in you know a week each way yeah well it's probably the dumbest idea i've ever had in my life but i was on a uh, adventure writing forum and i saw a person who had a uh, mid-70s yamaha 400 enduro that they had retrofitted with the auxiliary fuel tanks and bags and all sorts of stuff to ride on one of these long distance um, adventure rides. And I thought about how cool it would be to do the same thing with my 400 Enduro. Um, and so I think it, it's, it's stupid because of all it, a, it's, a, it's probably a terrible bike to take on a long distance adventure ride, but the thought of doing it and the challenges associated with it really got to, got me to think about doing it. And so I just posted for Pete and Eric at this picture of the motorcycle that I saw. Uh, it looks about as, as capable as it could be, but yet still, I look at that motorcycle and I think about riding that across the country and probably not the smartest idea. What do you guys think about it? No. (laughs) (laughs) The thing is suspension really does make a difference off road. It does. And, and that doesn't have it even that looks like it's got some upgraded suspension, but the, the drum brakes and the, yeah, that's, that's going to be tough. When I was up in Idaho, I was driving my MB five from Boise to Idaho falls. And, uh, I noticed there was this little squiggly line on the map, and I thought, oh, what the heck? Uh, you know, this is pre-GPS and Google Street View and everything. I said, oh, hey, this little dotted line, I'll I'll go up that way. And this was on my MB5 street bike, 50 cc, yeah. six and a third horsepower. And I got into it, and within about a mile, it just turned into a two-track. That, yeah. You know, you would have a difficult time in a passenger car doing this. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I got 30 miles of this ahead of me. I had saddlebags on the back because I was gone for the weekend and everything. And I had really narrow little handlebars up front for it. And by the end of that 30 miles, I was so exhausted and so beat up from not having the right bike. You know, if you'd been on a, you know, an XR200, it would have been a lot of fun. But it was every route and every rock you just pounding over it and i'm really lucky i didn't like you know bend a rim or something yeah. with my little two and a half inch tires that i had on it but it didn't kill you and you remember it so it was a success right and i saw a part of the state i wouldn't have seen otherwise yeah so i don't know if the dt 400 if it doesn't kill me and I make it through it, then maybe it'll be a success. But then I have to weigh the chances of whether or not I do die on it because, I mean, I think that that's reasonable to to think that I might on a bike like that. You know, when I normally think about dual sport bikes, I think of something like uh, <laughs> like a Kawasaki Versus or something, which was really just a, yeah. a dolled-up street bike. But yeah. uh, one of the bikes that really always intrigues me is the Betas uh-huh. that, that are... Their dual sport bikes are literally their dirt bikes with turn yep. signals added. Uh, they yeah. are hardcore off-road bikes that you can take on the road, and they've got DOT knobbies on them and stuff that I just... The problem is I don't have anywhere to ride it, you know? So yeah. if I ever wanted to do a trip like that, I would love to buy their 430 dual sport bike and and get some soft saddlebags and, on the back and a backpack and go for it. Yeah, yeah. And, and they're in... Therein lies the problem for me with like dirt bikes or even enduros or dual sports is 
kind of like you say, Pete, nowhere close to really go riding. Maybe there is, and I just don't know about it because that's not something I'm. I don't look at or know people. And and B, I don't know anyone who does it. No, no one anyone else who does it. And it's fine to go riding by yourself once in a while. But at the end of the day, you want to go with friends or people you know. A, because it's more fun, and B, if something happens, well, there's someone yeah. to help bail you out. It, you yeah. know, that, that's the thing. Where around here, at least, I still know some people back from when I used to road race who have XR100s or TT125s. There's a couple of people who have these little backyard TT courses, and you know, because they've got three or five acres around here, which you don't have to go that far to have around here. Yeah, you, know, you get six or ten people together, and you go do that for a couple hours in an afternoon, and you come, you know, you're drenched in sweat, and you. A couple good laughs, and because you crashed at twenty miles an hour and bit it pretty good, trying to you know play a hero move. And well, there for me, there are two unbreakable rules that I have for riding off road, and one is that I do not ride by myself. And period, for any reason, even if it's just five minutes outside of camp, I just don't ride by myself. And the second is that I always wear a helmet. Again, even if it's just putting up and down the trail, if I'm five minutes away, I always wear a helmet and I always ride with somebody. So if you don't have anybody to ride with, it, it can be difficult because it's so unsafe to ride without a partner. I mean, if there's people there that are nearby that could see you, if you have an accident, that's one thing. But if you're going to go trail riding, adventure riding, anything like that, it's so critical to have somebody with you. A friend of mine, the trail that I was talking about earlier in this podcast uh, that's just 20 minutes away from me, a friend of mine just took a little two-hour ride to go ride in these trails, and he ended up crashing, and he severed one of his internal organs on a get-off. And he almost almost laid there and died. He was able to crawl back to his truck, and he got down to a hospital, but he was in the hospital for months, and he was so lucky to have got out of that situation alive and he didn't really have any intentions of riding crazy or anything like that it was just one of those weird obstacles and didn't quite get over it right got thrown off and damaged one of his internal organs and that's just something that i'm i couldn't do yeah the one time that i was out riding the borrowed xr200 uh we got back to the pits loaded up the bikes and i was literally walking to the bathroom and I tripped over an exposed root that was sticking yeah. out of the ground, caught my, caught my toes, and I took a tumble and tore one of the tendons in my right knee. Yeah. And I immediately knew something was wrong, and I'm hobbling back. Fortunately, it's like, you know, 50 yards back to my car, and I'm hobbling back, and I thought, oh, my goodness, what if this had happened an hour out on the trail, and I had to yes. ride back like this? Because yeah. I didn't have any any shin guards on. You know, I was in a pair of jeans. And I thought, yeah. oh, boy, you can get in a whole lot of trouble uh, really far from yes. any kind of help. Yeah. Uh, not long ago, I was riding uh, in the East Fort Rock trails. That, that's the one that has a 320 miles of the trails. At any rate, I was riding out there, and I was just cruising down the trail and in a shadow there happened to be a big kind of head size rock right in the middle of the trail and i hit it with my front wheel and i went off the motorcycle hit my head went unconscious luckily there were people with me but when i woke up i like everything was green and for whatever reason it's this weirdest thing i could smell chocolate it's just everything smelled like chocolate Everything was green, and I couldn't see straight. I had to kind of, like, angle my head over to be able to see straight in front of me. But had I been by myself, there would have been no way I could have got back and to camp. And I was doing nothing other than just cruising down the trail. There just happened to be a shadow, and in that shadow, there was a boulder, and I hit it. So even when you have the best intentions, it can happen. I think that brings up a question. How much space do you need? You know, uh, can go thousands of acres and you can go miles off of a paved road but there are some hair scrambles that are you know granted that's a competition event but they're in fairly small plots of land that you can yeah. you can be within 20 minutes walk of your car the whole time so I, well i guess the thing you really need to find out too is i mean obviously there's like fire roads and stuff but i think it all depends on states and counties and stuff like that but you get areas where like they have like the big power lines cut out in, in the land where they run these big power power lines through. I don't know, but depending on who owns it and what the regulations are, maybe you can go 
you know, just if you want to go riding and, and rip it up a little bit, maybe there's a way you can do it on those, on those uh, swaths of land. Those, those rights of way are usually private land that the utility company... The power transmission company, yeah. Yeah, they lease the rights to put their tower there, but they don't own that land. Yeah. So technically, it's up to all the individual landowners whether they want to... Yeah, that's true. Out here, we're kind of spoiled just because we have so many spaces where there's a lot of area to ride. I kind of look at the distance that I have to travel versus how much area there is to ride. If I don't have a lot of time and I just want to take a 15 or 20 minute drive, I'm fine with a little bit less land. But if I'm going to drive two or three hours and I don't know, I kind of expect quite a bit of riding area to be had. So it's kind of a ratio of how much time I want to invest. I know that when I was out in Idaho, there's so much open federal land out there that really is unrestricted. It's not fenced. There's no one to tell you you can't go there. You can just literally take off and spend the whole day just going in one direction, exploring whatever you want to explore, and nobody can tell you you can't, which is much different than just about anywhere east of the Rocky Mountains. Yeah, that's one of the many reasons I... You know, if I'm gonna, if I would ever move anywhere, it's my, you know, my list is large but small in that it's gonna be somewhere, you know, west of the west of the Mississippi, and it and it goes like Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, Idaho, Washington, Oregon. Why lots of public land or lots of areas I go? Like you say, ride motorcycles, shoot guns, do you know, just kind of stuff, and no one around for fifty miles to to bother you if you don't if you don't want it. And um, one of the video, one of the YouTube channels I watch is a adventure channel, whatever. He does a lot of different stuff, and I'm always envious when he's out, like either shooting long distance rifles or riding um, off road, and you just see these scenic vistas, you know, and, and literally yeah. purple mountains, majesty, and. Uh, and then the owner of the company I work for, uh, he's got an up, he's got a place up in Twin Falls, Idaho, because um, that's where his kids are, and he's up there like every other weekend or something to to see them. And uh, the pictures that he just he you know puts on Instagram or or on Facebook or whatever, and you're just like, look at all that open land. <laughs> yeah, and the neat thing out here too is there's lots of sand dunes to ride in uh which are pretty fun in fact in uh idaho i think it's idaho there's a place called saint saint anthony sand dunes yeah and it's a huge expanse of uh sand dunes there's some on the oregon and washington coast which they're okay um they get a little bit crowded but nothing like the imperial sand dunes down in california i mean you can i mean you can get lost and die out there it's in, absolutely uh, enormous on the on the west side of the state there's a there's a couple of them there's um the the famous one is sleeping bear dunes um and it actually didn't used to be sand but in the 1800s uh, when all the lumber barons were out were running the were running the state and they just cut this big swath right off the uh, right on the, on lake michigan and because they clear cut so much, it went from being forested up to uh, up to the lake to all of a sudden it's this open area, and then it turned into these big sand dunes. And it's it's a it's a great place. I've never ridden on it, but I know people who you know have either ridden bikes or they had um, sand sand rails and stuff like that. Um, but it just gets super crowded just because it's so popular out there. Yeah. Uh, silver silver something or other down in the southern part of the west part of the state where i grew up was another one silver something or other but yeah sleeping bear dunes is is one of the famous ones yeah my my, uh, friend rusty that i constantly talk about uh, lives in pueblo colorado so he has all those continental divide passes that he can ride up and over and he's constantly posting pictures of really awesome off-road all-day trail rides it's not quite cow trailing and it's not quite really challenging crawling over rocks. They're not quite as nice as fire roads, but they're passable. Usually the only problem is ice or snow will keep them out until the middle of the summer. But I look at those and I think, Oh, I, I want to do that. And there's nothing like that around here. Even the area that you can go, you know, if you go down into the center of the state, go down in Arkansas, it's so hilly and so gnarly that you couldn't get a motorcycle anywhere other than the defined trails. Whereas up in Idaho, it's all brushland. It's all wide open. Not only do you have a lot of federal land, but it's all very yeah. navigable. 
Yeah. Well, as far as uh, motocross goes, I was interested about this over in your areas. How interested are people in motocross riding on tracks? I know in California, motocross tracks are like golf courses. I mean, they're just about in every neighborhood. Uh, Where I live in Washington, there's uh, quite a number of tracks. In fact, if you guys... um, follow motocross at all you'll know of washougal motocross park which is where they hold one of the national motocross races um how big is motocross riding out where you guys are at do you have organized tracks sanctioned races anything like that that go on out there unfortunately i have not been involved in motorcycle dealerships or the motorcycle industry around here in so many years i'm really not terribly sure what the state of it is in the past there's been places to race motocross and stuff kind of all over the state but they're always struggling to survive you know they're always you hear about this one closing somebody opens up a new one and five years later yeah they had to close that uh it's it's motocross tracks are difficult to keep open because the cost to run them are so much greater than the revenue that they get oftentimes unless they get sponsors and then the cost of insurance is so high with people getting hurt there and you've got to nowadays you have to locate them so far away from any residential area yeah that it's really tough to make a lot of money because you're asking people to drive into the middle of nowhere and it's yeah. really hard to build any kind of impressive infrastructure, so you end up with a track that's got you know a rickety two by four tower, some sandy pit area where you park your car, and that's it. And it's yeah. not the most attractive way to convince people that you need a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I just and, I just did a I just did a Google search just because I was curious. I mean, I I grew up by one of the more famous motocross outdoor motocross tracks in the u.s which mm-hmm. is red butt which is in buchanan and funny thing is um one of my i can't call him friend but person i hung out with occasionally in high school he ended up at marrying he's divorced but from the people who actually owned red Bud, so it was oh always, yeah it was funny but uh yeah i mean there's a big outdoor nationals that's held every year that's out in buchanan michigan and i'm just pulled up this website and i'm going to go and stand all right that's up north belding that's on the other side of the state by Grand Rapids, Park River, UP. This other one, I don't know, UP, Muskegon, that's way up north, Rose City, way up north, Nuevo, uh, west side of the state, Grand Rapids. Yeah, it's either like, again, west side of the state or mostly up north. There's a couple that aren't too far away from me. Um, yeah. One I know of isn't open anymore because it was part of the drag strip that I announce at um, occasionally. Although they still might run stuff there occasionally. But uh, yeah, most of us, again, it's west side of the state kind of and, and up yeah. north motocross tracks are super popular here and um probably almost as popular but more fun as a rider are gp style tracks here they have quite a few not anywhere nearby because they require a lot more land but within a reasonable driving distance there's a few cross-country slash gp style tracks where they're between kind of nine and 15 miles long they don't really have any significant jumps um, but more kind of obstacles in the way of them out in eastern washington there's a town called goldendale it's just kind of a small rural town it would look a lot like an idaho town um and when windmills are really popular there because it's just outside of the columbia river gorge and there's this really cool gp track that winds through the hills around where those big wind turbines are so it's this really interesting experience when you're riding a dirt bike through this track because there are these 200 foot tall towers you know with the windmill blades that come down and it's just a track that navigates all through them uphills downhills and it's the most uh kind of interesting riding experience riding through some of those windmills i can imagine i just pulled up google maps and did a search for motocross tracks in kansas and missouri and i also found a website mxtrackguide.com and it looks like there's between 15 and 20 in the state of Missouri and between 8 and 10 in the state of Kansas so uh, that's a pretty big area to cover yeah (laughs) there's not very many there I was going to say there's probably that much just in my city let alone the whole state yeah wow There's, there's quite a few well I have a friend of mine that owns a motorcycle dealership a fairly large one that uh I've worked for him years ago and i still know him and uh, he was a member of the isde 
uh, yeah. U.S. team back in the mid to late 80s for several yeah, wow. years. And uh, his dad actually later in life, uh, several years before he died, he uh, ran Dakar. He did not oh, really? finish it, oh, but wow. he uh, one year halfway through and busted himself up pretty good and had to wait to get uh, somebody to haul him out of there. But his dad, definitely an Iron Man. I would like to maybe see if I can't get some more information on what there is to do around here because yeah. he owns a KTM dealership. Yeah. He was a Husky rider back in the day and was factory sponsored and stuff. So uh, he's definitely the one that would probably know what is available around here. Yeah. So the other the other downside, and, and granted, I, I have a bit of a unique perspective, is especially if you're getting a dedicated off-road bike, whether it's motocross or enduro or dual sport. Well, not so much dual sport because I suppose you could ride to go riding off-road, but if something happened, then you're kind of screwed. Is vehicle transportation out there? Well, what's the best thing? A pickup truck. Well, problem for me is, well, you guys have seen my dog in the video for when we're doing the Skypes. I have a 180-pound Mastiff. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't have a whole lot of use for a big half-ton pickup truck, but if I have to have a pickup truck because I need to, may need to take my dog somewhere, you know, that's a big thing where I would rather have something like a, a Sonoma, GMC Sonoma, uh, Toyota Tacoma, um, you know, or, or a Ford Ranger or something just small. So a, a bike fits real easy back there and you don't care so much. But, yeah, trying to get a dog into that or my size dog into that doesn't yeah. exactly work. So yeah. there's, there's one other thing to throw at it. Unless you can afford to have a three or four thousand dollar or even a two thousand dollar beater pickup truck sitting around, so the hedge carriers that they have work pretty well. In fact, we had to use one of those the last time we went riding. Uh, one of our bikes was broken out in the middle of the trail, and none of our trucks would get there because they're all two wheel drive. But a friend of ours had a Jeep rubicon and he brought his motorcycle down on the hitch carrier this is in the mountains so there's still quite a bit of snow there so there are patches of snow that are about a foot deep so luckily he had that jeep because we were able to drive down some of the fire roads to the nearest uh, junction where we could get the motorcycle to load the motorcycle onto one of those hitch carriers and get it back to camp those hitch carriers are uh, really good for that purpose. And then also, if you don't have a pickup truck or if you, you know, fill up your bed with camping stuff and you need a place to put your motorcycle to, throw a hitch carrier on the back of it. How much are those good for? Like three, 400 pounds? Yeah, you know, it depends on the quality of them. They say something near 400 pounds, I think. I know that when we were, we put a motorcycle on the back of the hitch carrier, which was probably about 280 pounds. But some of the bumps and whatnot that he had to go over must have exerted quite a bit of force uh, on the hitch carrier. And it was amazingly stable, surprisingly so. uh, And and that's the thing that's always freaked me out a little bit about those is even if even if you have like a for the lack of a better one, like a a Subaru Outback or something like that or Forester or something like that. And you put a hitch and yes, you got the you know, you've got like the the right hitch. So you can put like a two inch ball hitch back there. Yeah. just that much force sitting out on the back or hanging out the yeah. back there. I always like, I'm sure it's fine, but it's just one of those things you look at it and you go from a physics standpoint, you go, hmm. Yeah, <laughs> probably not best for a Subaru. No. So I wanted to ask you guys, what is the worst injury you've sustained or know of that somebody has had off-road so like maybe you guys don't ride a lot of off-road but do you have any friends or anybody that you know of like what's their worst off-road injury story well i was a bystander but i was with some friends of mine when i lived up in idaho and we were hiking up to the top of a mountain where we were going to go spelunking and had some friends some friends that (laughs) were uh pretty serious cavers and i i was what they call a flavor a flashlight caver i Somebody that had no business going in a cave by himself, but I'd go with these guys. And uh, we were hiking up on a really very steep trail halfway up the side of a, a mountain to get to the entrance of this cave. And we got about halfway up, and there was a guy sitting with a off-road helmet and MX gear on the side of this trail. And it was the ledge was just wide enough for him to sit on. And we're like, what are you doing up here? And he's like, my bike's down there. And he pointed over the edge. And we're like, oh, okay. Uh, You know, do you need help? He's like, I think I broke my leg. Yeah. And we're like, oh, wow. Because this was just like, we were 
you know, kind of having to hard scrabble up the side of the hill just to walk. And we're like, I, I don't know what we do. And one of the guys was like, well, let me see if I have a cell service. This was 91, 92. So we were like, hey, we got service. So he called, called the local sheriff's office and told them what was up. And they're like, okay, we're going to send somebody out with a stretcher. It might be after dark before we get there. And we kind of told the guy, okay, bye-bye. And we went up, went all the way through this cave, came back hours later, and they were there with the guy. And I thought, oh, buddy, you weren't thinking this through very well. Speaking <laughs> yeah. of going out by yourself, you know. But even if it had somebody with them, we couldn't even see his motorcycle from where we were. It went over yeah. a cliff and down into a bunch of pine trees, and we couldn't even see where it was. Yeah. Eric, how about you? Yeah, I'm racking my brain just because I don't know too many people who've ridden off-road. Yeah. I can't think of anything. I mean, I probably gave myself a concussion or a mild concussion crashing on a motocross bike coming off some doubles one time. Um, I was, it was really the first time I rode a a motocross bike at speed other than putting around on someone's, you know, yard or on the local street or whatever. And someone had a track that we were at or some, somebody's homemade track or whatever. And it took me forever to get the hang of it. I think it was a late eighties. Of course, this is in 88, 88, 89, so this is probably an 87, 88 YZ125 I'm riding. I think it was a – I can't remember because he had he had a YZ125 and he had a CR125, and I can't remember which one I was riding. Anyways, took me forever to get the hang of the bike and finally was getting good with it, and I got brave and went over a set of doubles. And I got what felt like a lot of air, and I'm in, <laughs> and I'm in there, and it's like, holy crap, I got some air. It's another time you learn about – physics because like wow cool and you're up in the air and you realize your hand still got the throttle wide open or close <laughs> yeah. to open which is causing the front end to keep coming up and keep it coming yeah. up and about that time you go i should probably let off the gas it's like bang crash and you know it goes a little fuzzy for a little bit there and i just kind of remember waking up and going or, or coming you know getting my senses around me again going okay i, I appear to be okay Bike's okay. And yeah, then just rode for a yeah. lot longer. Yeah, you because know, you don't know what you don't know. Thankfully, I was wearing a helmet, so you yeah. know at least I at least I was, which is a little odd considering late '80s. That wasn't a big thing. Just you know, if you're out recreational riding, to to be wearing a helmet at the time. Yeah, so still kind of not quite the thing it is. No, I mean I've hurt myself plenty riding on on the street and broken bones in the street and on on a, or on a racetrack, but never off roads for me. You know, touch wood. Yeah. Well, I'll share my injury story and then uh, even worse, but more funny, my friend's injury story. For me, I was on a dirt bike and there is a jump and I wanted to go off the jump. And this was kind of before I had enough experience to know like how fast I needed to go. So there is a friend of mine that had been off the jump before and I decided that I would follow him and match his speed. Everything would turn out just fine. So we're approaching this jump. And in my gut, I'm just feeling like I'm not going fast enough. I think I need to kick it up a notch. And so I didn't. I went off the jump and I'm looking down, watching the landing go by and I'm still going. I'm still in the air. And I kind of went off of the jump at, at, a, at an awkward angle. So it caused the bike to kind of lean over and like just instinctively I put my foot out. And when I landed, my foot was the first thing to hit the ground, not the bike. And it fractured my heel and my tib and fib bones, uh, just oh. split them like a log, just split them all oh. the way up in two. Oh. I, I had tons of adrenaline, so I had n- no idea that I broke my leg. I knew it felt weird, like, you know, <laughs> something, something's not right. I'm going to walk it off. And so I, I got off and I took the first step and I felt the bones like move together. Like it felt like a crunching inside my leg. And uh, no, it's broken. I'm done. Uh, so that's my injury story. My friend and his dad were riding in Baja. My friend, he represented USA in the Portugal ISDE in 2009. He races the Baja 1000 every year. He's a really accomplished rider. His dad is a diehard off-road rider, and whenever his son goes to do the ISDEs or the Bajas, he goes with to uh, either support ride or um, just to be able to go ride. So about seven or eight years ago, they're in Baja riding, and this was before the 
the 1000 race. It was about a month beforehand. He ended up crashing and he broke his femur. So uh, they take him to the hospital. They put him under. They're going to do surgery because they have to repair his femur. So he wakes up. Surgery went fine. Everything's normal. They got a femur uh, fixed up. But about a couple months later, when he's finally standing, he notices his hips aren't aligned. So when he's standing, like facing the mirror, he can see that one hip is lower than the other. So he goes to the doctor. They measure his femurs. Come to find out, they they put rods in inside the femur, and they (laughs) shortened his femur by two inches when they did the surgery because that was the length of rods that they had. So, like, to make the rod and, like, whatever work out and the surgery, they shortened his femur. So now he has to have these custom-made shoes where one is two inches taller than the other to, like, make up for that shorter femur length. Oh, and. So that's Mexico hospitals for you. <laughs> so the the moral of the story is, or of all of our stories, is make sure you have a cell phone and don't go to Mexico. <laughs> yeah. One of the advent we were talking about adventure rides earlier. One of the ones I wanted to do because I saw videos of this 15 years ago was go to the Copper Canyons in Mexico because it's just absolutely gorgeous. But yeah, given how safe mexico is these days that's yeah. that's kind of off, off so, the radar unless pete you have anything else i just kind of wanted to mention uh, for the new writers or if you're getting into off-road riding just a couple pieces of riding etiquette that will help you and the people that are on the trail with you first is if somebody is crossing paths with you hold up your fingers with the number of people that are behind you so if you have three people behind you hold up a number three That way, the rider that is going down the trail knows that there's people to watch out for. How many of them? It will make it a lot safer. Secondly, when you're riding, you're responsible for the person behind you. So if there's a turnoff and you're riding in a group, make eye contact with the person behind you before you turn off. That will make everybody's weekend a lot more fun. Dirt riding is something that I think I would want to do more, except that I'm already 53 and I'm probably at the age where people who do it stop doing it so Eh, never too late to start (laughs) gentlemen it's been good see you all next week wonderful yes okay sounds good all right bye-bye bye